what is true about that statement and what might be less than helpful? First, let's start. What's true about that statement, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world? Yeah, Judy. Something happens to somebody who isn't a churchgoer or a Christian, and they're in a hospital, and they're like, God, what is going on? Sure. Something happens to somebody who might not be a churchgoer or a Christian, and they're, now they're, they're asking, God, what's going on? Yeah. Esther, we can... Well, like at 9-11, don't know where else to go. Yeah. So then they come to the church. Sure. Like at 9-11, don't know where else to go. Many people came back to the church. Now, in many cases, it was short-lived, but it got, got attention. Yeah, I saw a hand back there. Yeah, David. I was going to say sort of the same thing. Megaphone, even if you are a Christian. Yeah. You know, it puts you in a place of nothing else or no one else. Yep. And then you find that's all you need. And that's all you got. Yeah. Sir? Yeah, yeah Ellen. Like the megaphone part again. Pain is so loud. It's pain loud, yeah. It sounds everything else. Right. And you're just there, it's like throbbing, and all you can do is like beat your head. Yes, exactly. It's like, okay, yep, you've got my attention now because I can't turn to anything else. Yep. Okay, now how can that statement be less than helpful? Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When might that be, you know, have, yeah, limited? Yeah, Laura. Oh, sure. Someone, you know, yes. Yeah. So wait, so God's inflicting this pain upon me. Oh, good. Tell me more. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Esther. It can be interpreted as God's punishing us. Yes, good. It's another way that can be less than help. Yeah, Christine. Right. Yeah. Maybe I'll come to faith at some point. I'll wait for God to you know, really get my attention rather than a, a slow and gentle way. Good. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, Hans. I was just thinking of Luther and his trip across the, through the lightning storm. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, that got his attention. It did get his attention. Yeah. I mean, God has a way of using these things for sure. Um, there can be limitations to it too. Part of the reason I'm thinking about this is Anne and I just rewatched. Um, the movie The Shadowlands. You heard of this before? Oh, yeah. And it's the story of C.S. Lewis and his his wife, um, Joy Davidman, uh, and Joy Lewis, um, whom he meets only at the end of his life, at the end of her life. Um, and it, the movie frames it really well with him using this part of the the story that, as the movie tells it, is Lewis's transformation. That statements like that can be a way also of sort of insulating yourself from feeling pain and from being vulnerable. And at least as the, as the movie tells it, part of his journey in that relationship was opening himself and not just being like you know, a, a smart academic type guy to really being someone who was, was willing to be open and to be hurt and to be drawn closer to the Lord through that. Yeah, Pat. That's really well put. Did you guys hear that? Pat's saying that sometimes when a Christian endures pain and does so faithfully, graciously, that can be a megaphone to a deaf world. So not just the pain that I'm personally experiencing, but I know that you're going through something, and the fact that you're able to go through it, that speaks volumes. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, on that note, I want to turn to our video now, and it is the session uh, for Why Does God Allow Suffering? It's a little bit different than some of the other questions we've asked so far. This is a, you know, a deep, 
theological, philosophical, personal question, and it, it goes to some good places. So everybody's got a, a handout that wants one. You can take, take some notes. Video is always about 20 minutes long, and then we'll come back together and discuss it. Considers Christianity brings heartfelt questions and intellectual objections born out of real life experiences. They're looking for answers, but even more, they're looking for a safe place to ask their questions. Join me as I meet with a group of people who don't believe in the Christian faith to discuss six of the most common objections to Christianity. Welcome to the Reason for God. to our fourth session together. We're discussing tonight the topic, why does God allow suffering? Why is there so much evil in the world? Uh, this is a big philosophical question for a lot of people. A lot of people believe it really poses a huge barrier to believe in God. It's also, though, a very personal issue. It functions, I think, at two levels. And I don't know anybody who hasn't uh, struggle with the idea emotionally and existentially how could there be a God if there's all this. However, I think I'd like to start by putting it in a philosophical form, if that's okay. And it goes like this. Here's the, the difficulty. Given evil and suffering, if God's all-powerful, then he probably doesn't care enough to stop it, so he's not loving. Or, if God's all-loving and he wants to stop it, then he must not be all-powerful. But if you have an all-powerful, all-loving God, which is what the Bible says, existing, then there shouldn't be evil. But there is evil, therefore, that God can exist. So let me just start with that question. Uh, do you think that makes the case? Do you think evil and suffering pretty much disproves the very existence of God? What do you think? I would, I would, I would pretty much say yes. I think that's a big thing for me. Because, like you mentioned, if God is omnipotent, He, uh, if He, you know, is all powerful, all ruling, then He either pretty much chooses not to uh, save everyone or eliminate evil, or He can't. And if He, if He chooses not to, He's not benevolent. But if He chooses, or I guess if He, if He chooses not to, He's not benevolent. Yeah, can't. If he chooses not to, He's not benevolent. I can't say that word. Love anyway, love he's not loving. Yeah. If he chooses not to, he's not loving. And if he can, if he is loving, then he can't save everyone. So it really comes down to that for me. So you're convinced by that pretty much? Almost entirely, yeah. I think at the logical level, the answer is yes, it's a problem. Because Christianity does make, uh, I think, four claims, which as a package are in conflict with each other. It says that uh, God is a personal God who hears petitionary prayer. He is good and he's omnipotent, and there is evil. And any explanation of evil, at some level, compromises on one of those, or more of those four things, that he's omnipotent, good, uh, personal God, and that there is evil. Um, so at a logical level, uh, I think it is a problem. I think the existence of suffering is kind of least, like the two least satisfactory explanations for me. One of them is, 
God has a plan, we can't understand the existence of suffering. I just, that's a non-starter for me. I, you, have to, you have to do a better job than that. And then the second one is, yeah, because you can, it's just like a blanket answer for virtually anything that we can't think through yeah, or discuss. And so it's a very easy crutch, I think. And I think the second one is, there's a purpose for your suffering. I think that's also a very unsatisfactory answer, at least for me, because when you see how random the suffering, at least it seems to be, and how our sense of justice doesn't really seem to line up with what we observe, the idea that there might be a purpose, I think it, it just seems very unfair. There's something like instinctively unfair about that. The problem is the benevolence claim that Christianity makes at the logical level. Uh, I mean, if somebody went around, anyone else went around killing people or maiming them at birth or spreading cancer, you would have said that was a very bad person. Or even allowing it to exist if they have the power to stop it. But God does all those things. Right, that's what I mean. Exactly. So I was kind of so yeah, feeding off of what you're saying. That's the, but that's the problem with why shouldn't there be suffering. If Christianity didn't make the goodness claim about God, then it would be easier. And also, what if, what if some people's suffering leads to other people's happiness? You know, like let's say, you know, if a divorce in a family, maybe the kids suffer, but maybe it leads to the parents' happiness. So maybe some people need to suffer in order for other people to be happy. And maybe later on in life, coming from like a karma point of view, it'll all lead back to, you know, another reaction that will lead to non-suffering for the other yeah. people. That's my, you know, I always think that these things are personal choices that, you know, I think Buddhists and Hindus both believe that given a specific action, people choose to either see it as a positive or negative, uh, you know, outcome. And I think given sometimes more information, people's perspective on an action changes. That at a local level, personal family member passes away. That's a tragedy, it's personal suffering, but maybe through study of that person's disease, you know, I, I just heard, just want to throw in a personal thing, that today I heard a piece of classical music, uh, Metamorphosen by Richard Strauss, which is written right at the end of the Second World War. And it's this beautiful piece that expresses all this suffering of a you know, collective group of people, but it's for the bombing of Dresden, for a German city that went down at the end, and nothing about the Jews or the Allies or anything, but it's a beautiful piece of music. Just two things, two ideas. The only religion that says God actually came into this world and suffered, suffered excruciatingly and, and identified with us and, and suffered along with us all the things that we've suffered. One part of the Bible actually says that. See, assuming the Christian, Christianity is true for a second, uh, we still don't know what the reason for suffering is. God doesn't tell us. But now we know what the reason for suffering isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. And it can't be that he could just snap his fingers and let it all go away and still have us. So in other words, if he loves us enough to get to suffer for us, then he must have a good reason for allowing it to go on. See, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, if he came down here to suffer for us, I would like to know why he doesn't just stop it. I don't know why he doesn't just stop it, but the coming and suffering, grant, granting my premise, coming and suffering means that he must have some good reasons. It can't just be he's remote and doesn't care. I think those are just powerful premises. If those are true, then obviously I, I would agree, but it's so tough to know if those premises have any meaning behind them or if they're just ideas. 
this idea of a suffering God being unique, I don't think it's unique at all. I think we all suffer, and if God has suffered, then welcome to life. I feel like we're talking and defining these terms in a Christian context, and I, I guess it, within my head, I, I'm not interfacing with uh, interfacing with differently. Because when when the question is asked, why does God allow suffering? My my first thought is, why not? I mean, you know, coming from sort of maybe a Buddhist and Taoist background, suffering is life. That's a given. So there's no reason to question why it's there or even to extricate it from your life. And that applies to the term evil too. Of course, we've got to understand what we mean by these terms. I think that's a big problem. But I, if there's evil in the world, in my opinion, there's good in the world. And you can't take one out or the other. It's, it's, not, it's not possible. Can you explain like what you believe, like how you believe suffering to be or how significant it is? I guess I'm not really understanding where sure. you're coming from. Yeah. Um, in terms of suffering, in terms of what it is for me, uh, it, it, there's, maybe there's a sort of scientific way also to look at it, although I think it's more Taoist, which is to say that, um, you know, I think all this suffering, good and evil, are words we put to sort of a feeling of, you know, happiness or positivity, something good, you know, concept. And that sort of like um, happens as a result of, you know, it's like if you work hard, then you sort of get a reward of sort of a good feeling the result of it. And if you don't, then you don't. There's sort of like just a, a yin-yang, there's sort of a, a counterbalance of the dynamics that go on. And suffering is just sort of something that happens in the world. There's a struggle, maybe it's a better word to say. There's struggle, there's uh, work that builds up to a point, and then at some point you take a vacation or there's some benefit that you get from it. And so there's sort of that kind of notion, that's how I understand suffering a little bit. So there's nothing inherently positive or negative, it's all in how you react? Um, well, if, if positive means there's sort of a, a release, you know, there's sort of a, a benefiting from work or benefiting from discipline, then that would be a general positive thing. But sort of getting into the good and evil world is a little more loaded for me, I guess. And that's why it's a little hard for me to interface with it. As a pastor, when you're actually, when I'm sitting with people who are going through incredible suffering, uh, it, the idea that if you could see it somehow, this is all part of the way things are, kind of trivializes it. I, I'm, I, that's, I, I found, um, I, I, yet I do know plenty of people with, from a Buddhist point of view, an Eastern point of view, who have handled suffering with, with uh, Eastern meditation and Eastern perspective. I know that. I do also wonder sometimes whether that trivializes the evil of the evil. For me, the word suffering actually, my immediate jump is sort of to a Buddhist context definition of it, and uh, I'm not clear if that's what is meant here. Uh, and evil is a, a very problematic concept because I don't know if I actually believe in it necessarily, uh, certainly in a, in a way that I think a Christian would define it. And therefore also, I don't think our intention is to get rid of evil. Um, it, I think it exists in balance with good, and uh, you sort of resolve, you know, get rid of one, more of the other increases, but it always kind of comes back to a certain balance. I think as a, a skeptic, I do not explain the existence of evil and suffering. I think it's something that we have to deal with. I think in our daily lives, uh, you, the best, best thing is to actually try and do something about it. And the worst possible thing is to simply be indifferent. 
what about like self-imposed suffering? Like that was like one thing that I was thinking of. Suffering as self-imposed, like someone that gets uh, lung cancer because they smoke for 30 years or someone who, uh, you know, it recklessly spends their money and gambles and then they have to file for uh, bankruptcy. Like suffering that, you know, sometimes you go to the church, but it's obviously self-imposed. But then it's only self-imposed for you if you're dying of cancer. But your, your brother, your sister, your parents, for all of them, it's not. So uh, you're part of... It, you very often have a, an active role in some suffering, but most of the suffering is happening uh, to the people around you. For me, when you listen to somebody who's lived through the Holocaust or what have you, and you listen to their story, and this is just a very personal thing, it's like a, a tear has been made in the fabric of the universe, and there's nothing this side of the tear that can sew it up again. Let me propose a way to think about this, and tell me what you think. Um, six years old. Six-year-olds suffer because they see things happen. Uh, very often they can't understand what their parents are doing, which their parents are uh, disciplining them in some way or maybe moving them out of town. They never see their friends again. They feel unhappy, inconsolable, uh, filled with grief, and I think they suffer as much as anybody who is as, as upset as they can be. But we also know by the time they get to be you know, 25 or 30, they look back and they know they really suffered, but now they have a perspective. They realize why some of those things happen. Or even if they were bad things, they, they, they get past them because they're able to get a bigger perspective. If there was a God, why couldn't we all be six years old spiritually? Or even worse, I mean, the difference between a six-year-old and a 30-year-old, as different as that is, would be even, it'd be far greater to be uh, a human being and then maybe in heaven and seeing things differently. Why couldn't um, we all be six years old? And the reason I'm putting it this way is I don't want to say, oh, I'm sure. I don't see any purpose in this stuff either. I can't even begin to say, I'm sure there's some kind of reason you know, behind the Holocaust that God is working some kind of good. Uh, so I don't want to try to guess. I think it's awful. I do think it's insulting to guess. And yet at the same time, I wonder whether it's possible we're all six years old, and it would be possible to have a perspective on which everything we look at would be like the grief of a six-year-old. What do you all think about it? I like this, I hate it, I'm never coming back. It helps a little, or some other. I think it helps, because I think the six-year-old feels suffering because they can't predict the outcome of their actions. They do something and all of a sudden they just realize dad's yelling at them or mom's upset. There's a confusion that happens, but they were simply acting. I think as they get older, they contextualize their actions. I think that's what happens, that's how I see things in general. Things happen and we suffer, I think, and then later we gain understanding about what that suffering was. I think whenever you're suffering hardship, um, and I'll, I guess I'll make it personal, in my, I grew up in a very Christian family, my parents are still very Christian, and so if they see that I'm struggling with something or there are challenges in my life, they explain it by saying there's a greater purpose. And yeah, there might be, but I find that to be a very limited explanation. It doesn't really comfort me, especially because what you want at that moment is alleviation. You don't want some grand explanation of why this is happening to you. Another thing I do sometimes, which probably isn't the best way to handle things, is just to sweep it under the rug and just try and forget about it. Just cross it out of my mind and pretend it never happened. And that, that's one way that I can usually uh, deal with suffering. There was a guy named Horatio Spafford, Spafford, excuse me, 1870s, um, all 
four of his little girls died in a, in a, a boating accident. It was a, an ocean liner. 1873 goes down. So that's all of his children. He writes a hymn called it, um, It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it. And it's all about the cross and about Jesus. And uh, what's intriguing to me is you would think that he would work through his grief, and it was very, very helpful to him. It really helped him through. Uh, but it's all about Jesus dying on the cross. And I, I used to wrestle with why in the world would this have helped him? It's all about Jesus. But I realized two things that happen when you suffer. One is sometimes you think, I'm being punished. But the cross says, no, Jesus took your punishment if you, you know, granting the premise. The second question comes up, well, maybe God doesn't care. But the cross says God does care. In fact, he's lost a child out of his love for you. I mean, that's, again, granting the premise. So here's a guy who had real suffering. And the idea that God comes into the world in Jesus Christ and suffers, even though he doesn't give you the answers, but that proves that he loves us, it's pretty functional. Which brings us to, you know, the comforting aspect and the how people turn to God in a time of suffering, and you mentioned the story about the daughters and everything, and the man finding strength from God, and it really comes down to, is it really just a magnificent and wonderful coping mechanism? Is it this, is it this thing that people find strength in and find love in in times of you know great, great sadness? I'm not saying I'm against it, or I'm not saying I'm, I support it, I'm saying it, it works. And I'm not sure if it works because it's real or because it works. If, if we're putting the lens of is Christianity a coping mechanism, my question is what isn't a coping mechanism ultimately? Because, you know, it, it's a coping mechanism because we believe it's maybe not true and we're using these stories to help us get through the day. But, I, you know, as a science person, you know, who, you know, understood the history of like, you know, Newtonian physics was disproved in some ways. It only works within certain contexts. It was technically a coping mechanism until we figure it out you know, uh, I, you know, stuff Einstein brought in and stuff that is in quantum though. So I don't know. I th I feel like in many ways, not to trivialize it, just what isn't technically a coping mechanism. How do I feel about a suffering God in Christianity? It actually made me think that it is a unique aspect of Christianity. From what I know about all the other religions I've studied, it seems that that is something that is unique. And I actually felt it might be a useful thing to help somebody get through a tragedy. It seemed like we need that. We need to feel that there are people or there's a force or some being that can empathize and go through these things with us. I think that that's something I realized in my own life. And it seems like if Christianity can offer that, that might be a useful thing to think about. I think I need to wrap up. Let me give you a, a poem that vividly gets across uh, the, the distinctive way in which Christianity can give you uh, uh, a handle on evil and suffering. Uh, it's by, uh, I hope I can remember it, <laughs> but it's only the last stanza. It's by a man named Edward uh, uh, Shalido, and it goes like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and no god has wounds but thou alone. That's getting across the idea that um, Jesus on the cross is a God with wounds, and there's really nothing that speaks to my wounds over the years as uh, much as God's wounds has. So, thank you for coming. You gave me uh, lots to think about. I hope I gave you lots to think about.
And uh, thanks for being here, and see you next time. I can get a, I can get that reference for you, for you later. Yeah, right. Um, so interesting. You feel like you start to get to know these people a little bit watching this, right? I'm a scientist. I do very scientific things. That guy corrects me a little bit. Um, <clears throat> my answer is I just brush things under the rug. I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but that's what I do. I, I really appreciate that guy's honesty with it. Brian, I guess. Um, so much here. I wanted to start, though, with what our, our science friend, I think it's Eddie, he said that really struck me, that suffering, evil, and so forth, these are just words that we put to things that we don't like. These are just words that we put to things. It's nothing inherently positive or negative. These are just words that, I don't like this, therefore it's suffering, therefore it's evil. What are the limitations of that view? Why is that prop? Why is it important, even if the notion of suffering and evil creates some challenges for us, and it does, why is it important that we actually at least recognize that it exists? So we can do something about it. Okay, so we can, we can do something about it. If it's not there, you certainly can't do anything about it. Yeah, Ann? Okay, yeah. You can't have civilization if we can't agree on things that are, are good and bad. Yeah, yeah, Priscilla. Well, how can you comfort someone who is experiencing that if you don't see it as evil or bad? Sure, yeah. How can you bring comfort to somebody if you don't see it as evil or bad? You say, well, it's just going to balance out eventually. Yeah, Chip. That's what a lot of Christians do when they say, mm. well, God's working, you know, when you lose your child. Well, God wanted your child, and it's better for them to be there and that kind of stuff. We are trivializing and not recognizing this is a true evil, this is a true brokenness of the world, this yeah. sin. When we, we, we say, oh, God will work all good things, you know, it's like, but that's a true statement, but it, it can trivialize the pain. Yeah, so you understand what Chip's saying. He's saying that when, when Christians respond that way in the face of suffering and evil, we're effectively going along with that response that says, well, these are just words that we use. Not a big deal. In his uh, Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther says as about being a theologian of the cross. He says a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Calls a thing what it is. Isn't afraid to look at evil and say, yeah, that's evil. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't have to, to whitewash it. We're able to say, yeah, that's, that's not good. That's evil. That's suffering. Because of what Jesus has endured. Uh, there was a lot here and a lot to unpack. Where do you want to go? What, what are, what's a, a thought or a question that you really have? Yeah, Laura. The one woman, I thought she was being extremely vulnerable in this episode, but she brought up the impersonal blanket statement that she hears from a lot of other Christians is, we don't know why God's horrible things happen. We can't comprehend his plan. Right. And my question with that is, I kind of am with her because that really Right. Yeah, I, I was sympathetic to her, too, with that. Um, there's a, a beautiful memoir that came out a few years ago by a gal named Kate Bowler, and the title of the memoir is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I Have Loved. <laughs> and she's a fascinating story. She's a professor at Duke. Um, she's, she's my age, but when she was 33, 35, she had a newborn, and she gets diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. 
Now, to add an extra layer to it, she's a, a history a church historian, and her area of focus is the prosperity gospel. <laughs> this idea that if you just believe strong enough, then you can overcome these sorts of things. Okay. Um, she shortly after she gets this diagnosis, uh, a well-meaning Christian comes over, knocks on the door, and says, I, "And her husband answers." And I, uh, she opens the door, and she says, I'm so sorry to hear about uh, Kate's diagnosis. I just wanted to let you know everything happens for a reason. Okay? Everything and he says to her, okay, what is it? <laughs> and she's like, what? You just told me everything happens for a reason. I'd love to know what it is, why my wife has this. And the woman, of course, is just totally you know, dumbstruck, as well as she should be. Um, Kate Bowler is a faithful Christian person, but she undergo and she's still living, by the way. She's, she um, miraculously, I don't know, five, six years later, she's still going. That's um, a very limited response. Again, it might be true, but it's not necessarily so helpful. Right? So what is a more helpful way of, of responding? Let me give you four, four, five responses. Five responses. All right. Now I'm going to give you 17 possible responses. Let's rank these. <laughs> We're going to do weighted grading. Okay, one is you, you quote, uh, so somebody you know has encountered some, dip, say a loved one has died. Okay. You call them up and you quote to them Romans 8.28. Susie, you know all things, God works all things to the good of those that love him. So if you love him, all things are going to work to the good for you. Okay, that's one response, common response. Second response, this is a, a, a danger for us theological pastor types. We explain theologically why God might allow this. Now, you just don't, you don't understand you're a six-year-old and uh, you can't see what God is up to in this, but let me tell you, he has a grand design and he, he's going to, and so you just kind of explain it theologically. A third reason that we touched on is to tell him everything happens for a reason, it'll all work out, don't worry about it, Okay. Uh, don't sweat the small stuff, everything's small stuff. Fourth response, you listen to them as compassionately as you can and you just don't say too much in response. Or the fifth one, you put an arm around them and you assure them this is going to make them stronger. All right, five responses. Which of those would you say is the most helpful? All right, so... Show of hands if you think it's the first one, Romans 8.28. Okay, a couple of you. Second one, explain theologically why God might allow this. No, no, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them everything happens for a reason, it'll all work out. All right, we know that's not it. Listen to them and don't say much. Okay, or the fifth one, put an arm around them, assure them they'll be stronger. All right, it's almost unanimous here, guys. Isn't that interesting? Intuitively, we kind of know this. It can be hard in the moment to do it. Yeah, Kim? I guess, is it important to distinguish who we are sitting in the pain with? Are we sitting with a believer, or are we sitting with a non-believer? Sure, that's a, yeah, that's an important distinction. Because I think scripture, I mean, if we say this is the inerrant word of God, this is the authority, this is the word, this is the bread, mm -hmm. right, that we should not just live on bread alone, but the word. Yes. If we're meeting and, and sitting alongside someone who's a believer, yeah. I think we've got to listen and, and sit in their pain and suffering with them, but also direct their eyes toward 
the word. Sure, yeah. And the promises of God. Right. So I think we have to make that distinguish between ruling, before ruling out that these are all bad. One is only good. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you, you raise a really important point. One is the distinction, okay, are we seeing with a Christian, with a, a fellow believer, or somebody who's, who's not a believer, who's not necessarily going to find comfort from, from the word? Um, but also that ultimately we do need some hope, some promise to be able to cling to. That's part of why I say not, don't say too much in response. But what we do say, Lord willing, we're going to be pointing them back to the truth and to the promises of God. And maybe part of that is just, you know, I mentioned Romans 8.28 because that's a word that can be used in a dismissive sort of way. Um, whereas there are, are other words that might bring greater comfort, especially things from the Psalms, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Often words that just say things along the lines of God is with, uh, uh, Isaiah 57 says, God not only dwells with the high and mighty, but also with the lowly and broken of heart, right? Mm-hmm. That I don't know what the heck's going on here. I do know that God's still with you in this, right? Yeah, George. I think that's exactly what I've said before. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why God does this. Right. Uh, I'm as baffled as you. Right. Yeah. But, we know the answer is in him. Yes. Yeah, to be able to, to say, I don't know, that we don't feel like we have to get God off the hook or something like that. Like that pastor said it's almost insulting to try and figure out what God's plan is. Sure. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, not for us to, to say. Not for us to say. It can be insulting to somebody in their pain to try and do it. Yeah, Sandy and then Ellen. When I had cancer diagnosis and was going through uh, chemo, I, I was still kind of off the path, but my two believing friends, one was, uh, um, I don't know, Assembly of God, the other one was a Catholic, but uh, one woman sent me a card that had a picture of a hand mm. like this holding a newborn mm. that was of premature, mm-hmm. but extremely vulnerable, mm-hmm. and it was about you're in his hands mm-hmm. that spoke to me mm-hmm. dramatically. Mm-hmm. And then the other one uh, sent me um, something that said, um, "I know by all that he has done before mm-hmm. that I will be okay again." Yeah. Those two things carried me through. Yeah, I want. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to come back to that in a moment because I know. For many of you in this room, you've gone through grievous suffering, or maybe you're still there, and I want to hear from you what has been helpful. What are words that have encouraged you? So let's come back to that. But go ahead. I was going to say, but just no words sometimes. Just just being with them, making a meal, or uh, sitting with people, or sending cards, or praying for people, and you don't even have to tell them. Right. There's it's that doing. I think rather than speaking is what I think. Yeah. What sometimes gets called a ministry of presence, too. And it's interesting, we, Job's friends get a bad rap, and rightly so, they earn it over the course of you know, 38 chapters or something. Um, but this uh, concept of sitting Shiva, some of you are familiar with this, that, that's what they did at first. At Shiva is the Hebrew word for seven. They sat for seven days with him. So yes, they ultimately bungled it. But at first, they did the right thing. Like, I'm just going to sit with you. I'm going to be present with you. If you want to talk, that's great. But if not, that's okay too. Yeah, Melody. Um, when I think of suffering, and I think all of us in some time in our life have suffered, and 
the just ha going back to what you were saying, having somebody sit with you yeah. and just empathize and share your pain yeah. is powerful. Right. Um, I was involved with Stephen Ministry mm -hmm. Program for 12 years down in Lansing, and one of the things that as we went through our training, um, one of the things they say, you are not the healer, God is the healer. What we do is sit with them mm -hmm. to listen, 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 and just from our hearts, share God's love with them, whether they're a believer or not, and you don't have to push it, you don't have to, they not might not be in a place to hear scripture. Sure. Um, so you just sit with them and listen and, um, you know, let the love that you have, God's love that's within sure. us, um, to empathize and, and pray that they feel that love. Yeah, let the Spirit go to work. Yes. And when the opportunity arises, seek to speak a word of comfort and encouragement. Yep. But first listen. Yeah, Pam. Um, when our son had a brain tumor, Yes, yeah. I remember this one lady came up to me in church and she said, I prayed, I know God's told me everything's going to be all right. And it made me angry Yeah. because God didn't tell me everything was going to be all right. You right. know, it was against his brainstem. It was, like, really serious. Yeah. I didn't know, and we were okay at being in that place. So I really didn't take comfort from that. But we did receive comfort from non-Christian people hmm. who showed up at a prayer service. They were huh. church people, but they came to a prayer service for him. Wow. Or his uh, high school teachers that called, you know, or modified his, uh, you know, classes so that he could still graduate, you know, things like that. So I think it is those acts of, you know, walking alongside you. Yeah. What can I do? That really... Speaks volumes. Yeah, very good. Yeah, David. <clears throat> Just picking up on what Kim said, that you kind of want to listen, but you also want to be directed. In love, there is. Uh, it's just happened in the last three weeks that I've heard a singer, and uh, it has. It's really touched my heart and life. And the song is "Seed of Faith." It's by Charity Gale. You can only find her on YouTube. That song. If you catch the longer version, it's her testimony of getting married, having this music ministry with her husband getting pregnant, and then being told she has leukemia. Hmm. And uh, it's like, we couldn't understand what God was doing. Mm -hmm. Which is fair, right? Mm -hmm. Can we say that we do not know everything? That faith is, you know, believing in the unseen. Mm -hmm. Confidently. Here's, here's the phrase that gripped me, and I've shared it with so many people, and I've seen it mm -hmm. actually blessed them. Mm -hmm. The phrase is, plant a seed of faith, in a field of doubt hmm. and ask God to let it rain. Hmm. We don't know. Yeah. He does. Yeah. And maybe he'll be willing to reveal it to us. Yeah. Um, and But you praise God in it. And I know nobody wants to hear that. When you know the story and you listen to the song, it is, it is theologically yeah. stunning. Plant a seed of faith in a field of doubt and ask and God to let, to let it rain. Um, Along those lines, that makes me think of uh, Psalm 126 says, uh, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Yeah, very good. Others of you who have been through seasons of difficulty and grief and suffering, things that helped you, I'm, I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, Laura. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called What I Know by Trisha. It's actually from the movie God is Not Dead. Oh. Um, and the chorus is, What I know is you, my God, are real. No matter how I feel, you've never let me mm-hmm. And what I know is there will never be a day you are not just a breath away. And so we all have got to hold to what I know. Mm-hmm. And it just, it always helped me just change my focus from whatever was going on in my life. It just helped me to look at who God is and just trust that. Yeah. Clinging to God's character and who, who he knows, who we know who he is as he's been revealed in the scriptures and in his actions. And that, that's why, for me, pointing to Jesus is always the end goal and that's always that source of our comfort. So he said, you know, because we, we don't necessarily know why this has happened, but we know why it hasn't, right? That it's not because it's punishment. It's not because God doesn't care. When we look at Jesus, when we look at the cross, that's how, again, to quote C.S. Lewis, when we ask, how can God bear all the suffering of the world? That's where we say, he did. He did. That's the only ultimate source of comfort and strength is the cross and the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. So we always want to go back there. Yeah, Carla. Well, from the psalm this morning, you had, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yeah. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Mm -hmm. Cling to it. The Psalms really are the place to go so often with this. Because the, the psalmists are unabashed in saying, hey, Lord, what in the world's going on there? Hello, McFly, you know, wake up, God. How long? You going to do something about this or not? Why, do the wicked, uh, why are the wicked succeeding and your people are suffering? You know, um, it's a permission, I guess. To, it's honesty, to pray honestly uh, before God and to let our hearts be bare and open before him. Yeah, Esther. Well, this the thing about uh, what to say when suffering is happening. When I was going through a um, time of extreme pain, disability pain, mm. and having colitis that you know, no medications would help, and I was told that I was going to be that way the rest of my life, and people were praying for me and telling me, you know, you just don't have strong enough faith. Right. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so one morning when I can't go to work and I'm in agony, beating on the floor, God, why? You know, you say in your word, whatever we ask in your name, mm-hmm, you'll give it mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. And here I am, I'm not better, I'm worse. And we've been praying for six months. Right. And, you know, the, the peace of the Lord comes on me. And uh, don't you think I love you? Mm. That's what I hear. Mm-hmm. Then, what do you suggest if we put in your life here to affect some changes I'm trying to make in you? Mm. And I'm like, Joe, were you there when I did? Yeah, yeah. You know, how do I don't know? <laughs> do 
warm me back up. And he helped me in those words to realize the most important thing was the faith that he already created in my heart. Mm. That, no, don't leave me where right. I am. Right. Don't, yeah. So, yeah, I had colitis for another year, hmm. but then he healed me, and I never came back. Hmm. And he did heal you, oh, but it yeah. was in but it was in his time and through but that. The healing in my heart. That's what was mattered most. And I didn't care about the, the physical healing was was gravy at that point. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. I have this question about suffering. Um, I'm tentative to even say it because I don't it could be such a big mistake and I get people off track. But <laughs> if um, Christ suffered on the cross to save us. So his suffering was redemptive. Yeah. So couldn't some of our suffering in some way, shape, or form that we don't even see, know, feel, understand, till we're in heaven, maybe buy something, redeem something also. Suffering shouldn't be wasted. I can't see God wasting any suffering. You're, no, you're spot on. Um, so what Ellen is saying is the, the suffering of Jesus has redeemed the world. Is our suffering, does our suffering have any redemptive value? Is it for nothing? And your intuition is spot on. That in Christ, then, nothing is wasted, right? It's all gathered up into that redemptive work of our Lord. That's the promise and the hope. And, you know, Viktor Frankl, and his famous, not a Christian, uh, Jewish man, but that was in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, this is what he came, having been through the Holocaust, is that he recognized if, that if we have a redemptive perspective on our suffering, if we're able to see it within that larger picture, even if we can't just say, oh, there is a bigger plan, that's not necessarily comforting in the moment, but in the big scope of things, being able to see nothing is wasted, that God is, does use that for something greater good, is a source of comfort and strength, I think, in the long run. At first, it's not necessarily what you want to hear. Right, right. But in the unfolding wisdom of God, I think it's powerful. All right, Bob and then Pat, and then we'll have to, to um, wrap up. Two things. One is how we deal with it personally, but the question in the video was why, why it's there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a different question. And I don't care whether we're Christian or not Christian. We really want to approach this life that there shouldn't be suffering. Mm -hmm. But we really struggle with the fact this world is profoundly broken. Mm -hmm. It so it is the norm. Yeah. I mean, we want it to be abnormal and God do something about it. Well, he, mm -hmm. he did, but it is the norm. Yeah. And, and then our suffering, I mean, Luther was the guy that, that said once, if God were, you know, in a way in his kindness, he whisk us away to heaven as soon as we're baptized, right? Sure. But he, main, he keeps us here in the midst of a broken and suffering world. So by nature of living in this toxic <laughs> environment, we have to suffer, but we are here as his people for the sake of other people. Yeah. And there is a redemption in, in the fact that we remain in a suffering world for the sake of, of bringing other people the love of Christ. But I don't know how you say that to a non-believer, even to create. We, we really want a world without suffering, even though we recognize its brokenness and our own sinfulness. And we, we kind of want to pull those two things apart. Right. You can't have the one. The other is a consequence of the first. Yeah. Sin brought this nonsense. Right. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, Pat. I was just going to comment with a, a definite example.
tell you now that he would not wish that on anybody. It was super horrible. Um, but he would not trade it for anything because through it, he realized that, um, I mean, the emotion expressed to a high school student from his <laughs> friends and teachers, that was a huge thing. Um, his soccer team started praying before their games <laughs> in public high school. He, um, he, his career choice then became a child life specialist because <laughs> he had such compassion for these little kids that were his roommates in the hospital as a teenager. <laughs> he, um, he then... Uh, got a Make-A-Wish, and through that, he met his wife, who was involved in Make-A-Wish. So mm -hmm. it, it had a huge impact for the good out of his life, and you can look back and see that. Yeah. And he's okay with the second. Yeah. Oi. It takes time. But there's no question that Romans 8.28 does hold up. <laughs> it does. So I don't, by any means, mean to, uh, yeah, take, take that away. In the moment, we listen, we bear with, we walk alongside. Uh, and in, in the bigger picture, we're able to see oh, God is good. He's faithful. He sent his son and his death and his resurrection. Nothing is wasted. Nothing ultimately is lost. Great conversation today, guys. Thank you so much. Next week, we will continue on. God be with you. God bless you, church.